Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. Before we begin this week's episode, here's a message about our partner, Global Witness. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. I'm very happy today to welcome Rob Nixon to the podcast. Rob is a professor in the humanities and the environment at Princeton and affiliated with the Princeton Environmental Institute's initiative in the environmental humanities. His areas of particular interest include environmental justice, climate change, and social movements, particularly as they pertain to the Global South. His most recent book is Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. Thank you very much, Rob, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I'm delighted to be here. It's a great show. So I'm I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your fantastic book, Slow Violence, and uh, I also about your evolving ideas and research. It's it's a few years now. The, quite a few years the book is, is out, um, and I know you're working on, on other projects and you've continued that research. Can you maybe just by way of introduction tell us a little bit about your background and your current work focus? Sure. So I grew up in South Africa um, and was passionate about ornithology as a kid and a teenager, and I was pretty certain I would become an ornithologist. Um, and then uh, by the time I did my undergraduate degree uh, and I majored in African languages and literature uh, at a place called Rhodes University, by that stage I had, I had sort of fallen into a deeper realization of exactly uh, how the politics of landscape in South Africa had been constituted in, in terms of apartheid. Uh, and so, I mean, the, the writer Nadine Gordimer talks about falling, falling uh, through the South African way of life. And so at the time, under apartheid, South Africa was fairly isolated. Uh, TV was banned in its entirety. And particularly as a kid, you grow up with a sense of semi-normalcy, whatever surrounds you. That's, that's your world. And my parents were fairly liberal. Um, but... It was not really until I plunged into the realm of African languages and, and, and literature and made close black friends through that realm uh, that I really came to a fuller sense of the degree to which my early environmental pleasures were in a sense corrupted by the politics of violence, displacement, and the land. Um, and I had in, in, in many ways a the opposite of, of um, in our family, the opposite of helicopter parenting. There were nine of us in the house, and you know my, my parents often just wanted to shoo us outdoors. And uh, you know my brother, younger brother, and I, when we were eleven, twelve, we would hear rumor that there was a leopard in a cave twenty miles away, and my mother would drive us there and drop us off and say, "I'll pick you up at this tree in twelve hours' time." You know, while, <laughs> while you look for the leopard. And we used to supplement our our, our meagre um, allowances with uh, collecting snakes and selling them to the snake park, you know. And some of them were, were poisonous. So it was a very um, it was a very unsupervised childhood. And I was as I was I was particularly passionate about birds. But by the time I got to college, I you know I I. It was a very political time. The society was in a great state of upheaval. And so there were military call-ups for young white men, either after school or after college. And so after college, I felt I couldn't enter the military, and I left as a political exile. And so 
by now I've lived most of my life in the US. Uh, I spent along the way I spent five years in the UK, um, and I'm a citizen. I have a passport, a US passport, a South African passport, and an Irish passport through my grandparents. So I've always lived kind of comparatively, um, and I've always had uh, this very strong interest in uh, justice questions, questions of social justice. But for a long time, when I was a graduate student at uh, Columbia, and then when I continued to teach there for um, eight or nine years, I took no interest in the environment whatsoever because it seemed incompatible with my broader interests in uh, post-colonial studies, in questions of empire uh, and justice. Um, and I worked at the time, I did my dissertation under the supervision of the Palestinian-American Edward Said, uh, who had a profound influence on me, both in thinking through questions of settler colonialism more broadly. Uh, he didn't have an environmental bone in his body but he did think comparatively, and it, it, he helped me kind of globalize my perspective in invaluable ways. And then something happened. Uh, I, I had always taught African literature um, and, and post-colonial studies, and two things happened. Uh, one was in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, you know, living in New York, the, the big social trauma uh, was HIV/AIDS, and we all knew friends and and uh, people we were close to who who were dying and did die of AIDS, and we saw the rise of um, ACT UP and the successful attempts to reorient uh, the research agenda uh, to actually coming up with uh, what were ultimately antiretrovirals and to remove the stigma of AIDS. And, and so some of what we're seeing with Trump and COVID um, resonates with Reagan and AIDS and, and the demonizing of people who wear face masks and the demonizing of people who are HIV positive. And a book that really influenced me a great deal was, was at the time was Derek Jarman's Modern Nature, where he... Um, when he became HIV positive, he retreated to uh, the Dungeness, uh, the coast of Kent, uh, in the shadow of the nuclear power station, and on those unpromising shingle beaches, uh, created a garden for himself. And the modern nature is a diary of his his decline, his loss of his sight, and ultimately his death. Uh, and one of the things that really struck me about that book was the way that he was trying to integrate something environmental like gardening with the nuclear uh, question of nuclear power and also with the, uh, the, the fate of his own body in relation to HIV AIDS. And then a couple of years after that, um, I got involved in a campaign to uh, release an African writer who I'd taught called Ken Sarawiwa. He was a Nigerian activist who was um, opposing the despoiling of the Niger Delta by Shell and the Nigerian National Oil Company. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I had steeped myself in African literature and politics for many, many years, and I'd never heard of an African environmental writer because in the context of Africa, environmentalism was very closely twinned with colonialism. Um, and it was often seen as, as anti-human. Uh, these environmentalists come in to East Africa or Southern Africa, and the reputation is they like animals more than they like people. And yet with Kensar Wewe, the situation was that you had um, the equivalent of an Exxon Valdez oil spill through leakages from a, a very um, uh, dilapidated, pipe system, the equivalent of, of that kind of oil spill every year of, for, for about 30 years. And what uh, Sarawiwa's genius was to recast what he initially uh, fought as a struggle for the defense of his Agoni people, a small micro-minority of about half a million in Nigeria. He recast that in terms of uh, environmental justice. 
and started getting international traction once he connected human rights and environmental struggles. And so I think in 1995, when I was teaching at Columbia, I taught a course called Modern Nature, and I, I sort of uh, bookended it with Derek Jarman on the Kent coast and Kensaro Weaver in the Niger Delta, and started trying to find a way for myself and for the students to think together these questions of colonial colonialism and racial injustice on the one hand, um, and environmental protections on the other. So that was really the beginning of of the tra my trajectory. And and you continue to teach and research in the area in, in literature as well as in the post-colonial environmental justice area. Yes. So in, environmental justice has, has really been central to my work for the past 25 years, I would say. Um, and my position at Princeton is is a professor of environmental of environmentalism and humanities, and I'm very very interested in the power of story and image to catalyze social movements. And so, you know, as the COVID crisis has uh, illustrated so well, we need good data and we need better data. But the fact that we have that data does not mean that the data will translate into good public policy. Uh, and so I'm, I'm fascinated, and this is evident in Slow Violence and elsewhere in my work, I'm fascinated by the power of a meme or a story or an image to catalyze public sentiment and to translate scientific knowledge uh, into uh, powerful currents uh, that ultimately strengthen social movement. So, I mean, just to take the current... I mean, to, to go back to the, the, the AIDS example, if we think of silence equals death and the pink triangle and the way that ACT UP used those symbols to mobilize and connect what uh, many uh, LGBTQ activists considered a, a kind of gen uh, genocide by sloth, if you like, on the part of the Reagan administration, uh, to connect that with the Holocaust. And if we think of two very, very powerful memes at the moment, um, Black Lives Matter and I Can't Breathe, uh, when the people came up with those phrases, they didn't, couldn't have guessed that they would have gone viral and global and had such domino effects in so many societies. Uh, so I, I, I'm very interested in working in this interface between scientific data and public um, narratives, public uh, stories, public images, and how we reach certain tipping points. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, so there, yeah, that's, that's really at the, at the heart of, heart of my interests. Yeah. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and I, I spoke to Catherine Hayhoe recently, mm -hmm. who spends a lot of time thinking about that. And it's a recurring theme in many of the interviews is how the environmental uh, movement, I guess, in various ways has managed to, to tell the story of the challenges we're facing and the, how the, the role the scientists play and some of the, the, the very challenging issues at the heart of the, the climate crisis and, and reasons why it is a, you know, a wicked problem complex and uh, difficult to translate into uh, action or, or, or motivate people to, to uh, take action and uh, you know, various different layers there. And, and, and this question of slow violence, I think, is, is very important. But maybe just first, can you, I, I like to just get a sense uh, at the beginning. Um, we face no shortage of, of environmental and, and social other problems, and, and not to mention the, the immediate uh, coronavirus crisis. Um, but what in particular is on your mind right now? So, yeah, three things, really. I mean, we, we are living in, needless to say, an extraordinary time. And uh, in the U.S., what we have is, is three things going on. We have the COVID crisis. We have the epicenter of the Black Lives Matter movement. And we have the run-up to the uh, November election. Uh, and I think if, if, if we look at these three together, they all... Um, 
are profoundly consequential for the future of environmental policy and environmental transformation. And I think not only in the in the U.S. but globally. I mean, uh, it, it's it's arguable that uh, U.S. elections are so consequential that every citizen on earth should have a vote in them uh, because the fallout for defunding the WHO to shredding various, uh, you know, uh, defecting from the Paris Accord and so forth. I mean, they're, they're very, very consequential. And so um, the what we're seeing with COVID is semi-analogous to what we're seeing with climate science denialism, which is the casting of science in the U.S. by a very significant and powerful minority the casting of science as elitist um, and as anti-freedom. Uh, and I don't know of any other society in which this body of thought and activism is as powerful as in the U.S. Um, it's diminishing, I think, uh, particularly generationally. The younger generation buy into it less. Um, but it's not just an ideology. It's a set of think tanks. It's um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars that are invested in either denying climate science or in uh, pretending that there are large constituencies of experts who are uncertain about whether uh, uh, climate breakdown is occurring or not. Uh, and so that the some of the the, the legacy of that anti-science ideology. Uh, has implications for the completely derelict response to COVID. Um, and this, in turn, uh, connects up with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement because in terms of the, the structural violence uh, and the slow violence of, of, of poverty and discrimination that are the continuing legacy of slavery, and uh, the seizure of native lands in this country. Uh, we see um, the unequal burdens of uh, health risks fall most heavily on the poor who in this country, in the US, are disproportionately African-American, Latina, and native populations. Uh, and so, I mean, the one encouraging thing I feel about all of this is that if we look at the longer history of environmentalism in the US, uh, it started out very much as a wilderness-driven movement. Um, by most country standards, the US is very lightly populated, and the um, ideology of conservation was very much grounded in the, in the idea of uh, preserving spaces where people were not or where very few people were. But in an urbanizing world, and if we're thinking of societies that are densely populated, China, India, Nigeria, Indonesia, even the UK by comparison, uh, that wilderness model cannot be the dominant model for environmentalism going forward. Uh, and so what I've seen over the last, I would say, 10, 15 years in particular, is environmental justice moving from the margins much closer to the center of environmentalism. And so we see this in the COVID movement, uh, the, in the COVID phenomenon and the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, this very strong overlap between environmental concerns and public health concerns. Um, so access to, um, to, to healthcare, access to breathable air, to drinkable water. These are, are very, very pressing concerns for the poor, and it complicates uh, a perception of environmentalism that certainly was there in the early days when I started working in these areas, a perception that environmentalism is a kind of a boutique issue um, for, for the well-off because they don't suffer the exigencies of day-to-day of, of -day survival uh, that the poor experience. Now, clearly with climate change and um, rising oceans, rising temperatures, 
the poor are living in the front lines of those uh, dramatic transformations. And so if you're in Bangladesh um, or on a small island, like the, uh, small islands like the Maldives or uh, in, in, in the Pacific, uh, climate breakdown is not a, an issue that is the province of the rich. Uh, it's it's right there in your face, uh, already happening, and so that that I think is one of the the most encouraging dimensions to the environmental movement that I see now is a great diversification of the kinds of stories and the kinds of imaginative and political energies that are coming to the movement from quarters. Uh, where people might previously have thought, oh, you know, environmentalists live in London or Geneva or San Francisco, and they come here and they impose their agendas. Uh, but instead, I think we're having very powerful new currents of environmental activism and thought uh, that are rooted in local knowledges, be they urban or be they rural, um, and and that includes very much the environmentalism of the poor. Very interesting. In your book, you you analyze and you you talk about and introduce some fantastic range of thinkers, very committed thinkers, uh, writing about the environment in very in various different ways. I, I'm just wondering, could you talk a little bit about? Uh, and this is something a recurring theme, I guess, in your work and, and interest in in the importance of culture in, in uh, how we think about uh, the, the environmental questions and how that leads to action. Um, I mean, you talked about the AIDS crisis uh, back under Reagan and so forth, but I'm just wondering more generally in terms of cultural values and, and how that evolves, because uh, clearly today we live in a, a much more multimedia culture. You talk about memes and, and uh it is impressive the way uh, some of these ideas have spread so fast and uh, are so powerful. But uh, just as a way of a kind of backdrop to, to these questions, if that makes sense. Mm, it does, yes. Um, so culture has a profound impact. And, and it's not possible, I think, for any community to live anywhere without developing a body of environmental knowledge. Um, which which is integral to their chances of survival. And that knowledge is transmuted as it's transmitted across generations. Uh, and I think one of the things that we are seeing now is a, a greater openness to different genealogies of environmentalism. So that if you're... Um, Adivasi living, forest people living in, in India, you have a particular set of relations to the forest. Uh, in, in the Amazon, they, they, might, they would be different. Um, if, you're, if you're in the Sahel or if you're in, living in Harlem, you have a certain uh, um, set of cultural values and a body of knowledge that are located in that place. Uh, and so I think there, there was a time when the idea was that environmentalism was kind of top down and that you had to teach poorer people to respect their environments and so forth, okay? Um, but what we see with, with, say, just to take one example, uh, Wangari Maathai, who was the, uh, one of the founders of the Greenbelt Movement in Kenya, that ultimately planted something like uh, 100 million trees across East Africa. If we think of somebody like her, she was rooted in a rural Kenyan culture where her grandmother said to her, when you go out to collect firewoods, don't touch the fig trees because the fig trees have this vast rooting system that holds the banks in place. And if you cut down the fig trees, uh, the banks will collapse, the river won't be shaded, and it will dry up, and it will affect our capacity to get water. And she then went on to get a PhD in biology and to found the social movement uh, that tapped into uh, a deep local cultural knowledge of tree cultures uh, in Kenya 
and help that uh, help generate a kind of civil rights movements from the planting of trees. So the planting of saplings uh, was uh, was used as a cultural weapon, a symbolic weapon, a nonviolent weapon against a very violent uh, Kenyan regime uh, under under Arap Moy. Uh, who, who were felling the public forests and turning them into golf courses and uh, estates for cabinet ministers and so forth. So the, the, the role of culture and the role of symbolism in um, making public statements that can be expressive of deep-held cultural values, I think is, is quite, quite profound. Um, and we see this, we, I think we've seen this also with a, with a recent turn towards um, paying more attention, uh, and I think this is global, to indigenous voices and currents of indigenous knowledge that um, are less perhaps arrogant in their relations to the environment, to the earth. And also that, uh, in many instances, offer a longer time frame, an intergenerational time frame, cultural values that, say, um, in a sense, are antithetical to the extremes of neoliberalism, where, where, it's, where it's in the, the, the impetus is towards instantaneous profit without um, thought for what's going to happen downwind. Uh, and so I think uh, that there are these cultural shifts and um, culture has a profound, sometimes very often incalculable role uh, to play in transformation of what constitutes environmentalism and environmental possibility. Just one last example, you know, we could go back to Rachel Carson and Silent Spring and President uh, Teddy, I mean uh, President Jeff Kay, coming to the podium, giving a speech, and having a copy of Silent Spring in his hand, and saying, "We're going to look at the toxic fallout in in in, in agribusiness and and so forth." So a book like that captured the public imagination, and at a time when uh, I think there were only three TV channels in America, hard to believe, but uh, one tenth of the entire American population sat down at the same time for one hour to watch the TV documentary on Silent Spring, you know, and that had a profoundly transformative effect on uh, environmental consciousness as it shifted, uh, helping it shifted away from a conservation only focus towards something closer like uh, environment, closer to environmental justice. And as a result, I think that Carson's seminal book played a, a very big role in the wave of environmental legislation that followed in the late 60s and early 70s in the, in the U.S., the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Endangered Species Act, the Wilderness Act, um, the uh, formation of the Environmental Protection agency many of in fact many of the institutions and and acts that are currently being unraveled under Trump were largely instigated by uh, uh, cultural events like the publication of Carson's book and then in 1970 uh, the Wisconsin uh, um, Wisconsin's Gaylord N Nelson instituting Earth Day which became an annual and international phenomenon. So, you know, I don't think we can underestimate the role of culture in uh, creating these, these, these tipping points in consciousness and even ultimately in public policy. We've seen uh, tremendous growth in social media, which has been a, a mixed blessing in, in, in many ways. Yet, yet you see on Twitter and so forth, you see a lot of voices. I guess there seems to be uh, increasing awareness that the mainstream media very often represents corporate financial interests and there's a tremendous amount of distrust 
which also taps into other ways in which distrust has been, I guess, fueled and so forth. But I'm just wondering whether um, you have, uh, just finally on, on the cultural side of things, any thoughts on on, on maybe the media and, and also, I mentioned just in, in, in film, I mean, you, you spend a lot of time looking at, at, at writers and, and literature, but uh, clearly cinema is very capital intensive, but it's also very, very powerful. But just any reflections on, on, on or observations on, on how you see that kind of cultural uh, impact? Yes, uh, um, it's profound. I mean, if we think of the short video of George Floyd uh, um, and the fact that without um, you know, cameras on our phones, uh, so many accounts would have been discredited as they were in the past, accounts of violence. Um, to take another recent instance, which, which may or may not have resonated internationally, but there was a fellow called Christian Cooper, who's a black bird watcher, uh, the very day that George Floyd was, was murdered. Um, Christian Cooper was bird watching in Central Park and where dogs are supposed to be on their leash and the, a woman approached him with a dog uh, unleashed and he asked her to leash it. And she uh, called 911 and said an African-American man was uh, assaulting her in the park, threatening her and assaulting her in the park. Uh, and he caught that on his phone. Uh, uh, and one of the things that that, that reminds me of is, is, is a, a video that also went viral maybe six, seven years ago by a black ornithologist called Drew Lanham, who teaches in the South, in South Carolina. And it's called Nine Rules for the, Rules for the Black Birder. And basically what he's doing is dramatizing in that little, maybe four minute video, uh, the difference between being a white birder and a black birder. Uh, and so he says, the rules are never wear a hoodie, take at least three forms of ID, uh, when you birds, best bird watching is at dawn and dusk. If you're creeping around in the woods in camouflage gear with binoculars and you're black, uh, you're a suspect. Uh, and so he laid out the differences for a black person and a white person, uh, simply being passionate about birds and, and how you have to develop that spatial awareness. And so if we, if, we, if we watch that and then seven years later we watch Christian Cooper's video, we can see uh, the sort of prescience of, of Lanham's insights. Um, and he talked about when he was doing his PhD, he wanted to study a particular warbler that migrates from the deep south to the upper Midwest, Michigan. Uh, and then he he looked at where he had have to do his research in 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 the swamps of the deep, deep south, and his supervisor said to him, "Listen, you, you your work may be famous, but it'd probably be posthumously famous um, because it's just such scary terrain for a, for a black person." So what he did in trying to in determining how he was going to conduct his research was he took a map of the dist distribution of different warbler species in the United States. And he took another map of hate crimes, the distribution of hate crimes in the US. He superimposed them and chose a warbler that would, he would have to research in less dangerous territory. You know? uh, and so, so you know, to come back to your original point, I think these kinds of, of, of videos can, first of all, um, amplify the witnessing power of groups of people, be they African-Americans or women or, or the poor whose voices have been historically discredited as witnesses. Um, and they can allow for uh, constituencies to galvanize uh, very rapidly and produce a uh, kind of social pressure. Uh, the more difficult task is how do you translate those moments of, uh, of sort of um, digital uh, massing into structural change? You know, how, how, how do we maintain, if we like, the slow resistance or the slow transformation 
um, once the attention span has moved on, as it tends to very rapidly. Yeah, that's very interesting what you say, because the examples also you, you, you are, are dramatic and intense and uh, emotional. And at the heart of your argument about slow violence is that the slow violence has none of those qualities and is very difficult to 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 uh, to dramatize, I suppose, and to get people's attention. And to this is uh, clearly at the heart of the climate crisis, which is a slow unfolding uh, series of, of of crises which seem far away and seem in somebody else's country, somebody else's world, and over unfolding over a very long t- time frame. Can you maybe just talk a little bit about? Uh, what slow violence is, what, why it interests you, and how, how it helps uh, thinking about uh, environmental and uh, climate justice. Yeah, so so actually I'd started off thinking about it in terms of um, the toxic aftermaths of war, uh, things like depleted uranium, landmines. Um, and I remember reading an article in the New York Times saying that during the Vietnam War, uh, we, that is the U.S., um, responsible for 1.5 million deaths and so it was bracketed that number was bracketed by the 12-year uh, expense uh, official expense of the war uh, but I was very aware that the the fallout from agent orange was intergenerational uh, through biomagnification in the food chain uh, the toxins uh, the effect of the toxins were perpetuated increasing even into the third generation risks of things like Alzheimer's, heart disease, uh, and and various other uh, disabling conditions. Um, and in, in Bien Ho, which was the center of uh, the storage of, of, of Agent Orange and, uh, and some of the Agent Orange deployment, uh, the levels of toxicity uh, 25 years after war's end were something like a, 140 times higher than in Ho Chi Minh City. So that was my context uh, for, for thinking about how do we uh, retain attention when the damage is continuing, but the event has ceased. And so the, the, the opposite extreme of Slovans would be something like 9-11, where uh, it was unbelievable that it happened, but yet many Americans recognized it, recognized its cinematic qualities in a sense that had been imaginatively prepared for it. Um, uh, versus, say, for instance, the fact that the first responders at 9 11 uh, were, there was this whole debate whether they should wear masks, you know, again, kind of prefiguring some of today's debates whether they should wear masks, whether they were at risk of, uh, of inhaling hazardous substances. And I remember Christy Whitman at the time saying, no, uh, the, the, you can, there's, there's an all clear here. There are no health risks. And down the line, we have seen tremendous number of people dying prematurely from various forms of, of lung disease and, and suffering many, for, for many, many years as a result of the absence of protective gear uh, when they uh, valiantly uh, responded, many of them just as volunteers, to the aftermath of 9-11. So that's a case of slow violence where um, that's no longer a catching, a catchy storyline. Uh, that happened way back then. But for people inhabiting those bodies, it is continuing to happen. Uh, so if we scale that up to the climate crisis, uh, one of the most encouraging things I feel, and this is partly, you know, spending a lot of my time teaching people in the late teens and early 20s, is that for the younger generation, the question of climate breakdown and the question of intergenerational answerability is front and center. And we can see this in something like... Um, uh, the Green New Deal, where you have a very tightly interwoven set of issues around intergenerational responsibility on the one hand, and what's often perceived by younger people as intergenerational theft. Uh, and so the question of um, 
student debt, climate debt, uh, the, the impossibility of getting on the housing ladder, uh, all of these questions uh, are, are very much a, a, a braided together in relation to uh, a broader set of issues of distributive justice. And those issues have a profound temporal dimension um, that what well, I'm seeing more and more, uh, and this is evidenced also in the polls among young people, is we can't keep kicking the can down the road. We, we are now creating the world that we, the, the young people, will inhabit. Um, and we see this, for instance, in, in the debates among young people about uh, the wisdom or even ethics of procreating. Absolutely. Yes, the generational um, issue is, is, is tremendously important. And there's a f uh, wonderful book by Keir Milber, and I don't know if you come across called Generation Left and looking at what happened, what's been happening in, in British politics. And No, I don't know that, yeah. Yeah, I'll send you a link. I, I, I spoke to him a few months ago, but it's about the, the impact of, of the younger generation and how that's changing and changing British politics. Um, not maybe uh, fast enough, <laughs> given our recent election history, but uh, yeah. Yeah, very interesting. I, throughout your book, there's um, you can't get away from the, the impact the, econo the impact of the, the economy, the impact of, well, the particular economic era, I guess, the, the, the neoliberal era, or the mm -hmm. last 30 or 40 years, that wasn't called the Great Acceleration, um, and, and I guess underlined up capitalism more generally. And I'm just interested if you talk a little bit about um, that. And, and uh, I guess linked to that is, is over this period is this emerging idea of the Anthropocene, um, mm -hmm. which has, has, has become uh, popular and growing interest in, and, and it focuses, I guess, at a species level almost of, of what, what humans are doing while looking at the, the, if you look at it from an economic perspective, we can see the, the impact of an economic system, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years. Yes, yes. No, that's, you're absolutely right. That's uh, central to my work, this question of, of neoliberalism and deregulation in particular and the concentration of wealth. And so up until the 2007-2008 uh, economic crash, um, this question of, of inequality and disparity, which has been growing in most societies um, for, for, for a good, good while, uh, that question was largely seen as a sort of left-wing issue. Post-2007-2008, even on the right, politicians have had to grapple with it. Uh, and so this broader question of distributive justice, distribution across generations, distribution across races, and, and, and uh, gender distribution, this broader question of, of distributive justice is, has become interwoven with the question of, of environmental justice. Uh, and what we're seeing now, I think, with the complete mayhem of the response to COVID in the US and, and I think in the UK too in a different cultural context is a reminder that government can still play a role, that regulations play a role, that one needs precautionary, you need to invest in precautionary institutions. And those very institutions that have been dismantled and defunded in the US and the UK are there for to take care of precisely these emergencies. And you cannot reconstitute that expertise and those institutional networks overnight uh, when a pandemic suddenly arises or when Hurricane Sandy hits. Uh, and so I think what we are seeing at the moment, uh, both in, in generational terms and perhaps even more broadly, is a recognition in at least in the American populace at large that hey government does have a role and this idea that was promulgated by Thatcher and Reagan and has you know con continued in various permutations since that the best government is the the smallest government that you have to shrink government um, is absolutely catastrophic and that if we're to tap something as big as COVID uh, or even bigger uh, climate breakdown we do need 
cooperative structures. We need deep pools of expertise. We need well-funded, well-resourced uh, civil services and, uh, and, and hospitals and healthcare systems that are, are, are set up in an anticipatory way. Uh, it's simply not possible to respond retroactively if you have appointed, as in the US, people to direct these institutions whose primary remit is to dismantle them. Uh, and I think that is going to have a, a, a political fallout for this next election. Uh, I, don't, I hope I'm not being over-optimistic, but I do think the perception of government itself and the role of government and perhaps recovering some of those social democratic values that have been gutted under uh, a neoliberalism, uh, perhaps we can, we can hope for, for a turn in that direction. So to come to, to the second part of your question that we, about the Anthropocene, um, so, you know, I think one of the, uh, I, I won't get into the various debates about when the Anthropocene started, I mean, and, and uh, so forth, it, it, it can get a bit technical, but I think the, the basic idea of the Anthropocene is that, you know, for the first time in the history of the planet, we have a sentient species, namely Homo sapiens, that is having an impact on life on Earth that is roughly analogous to an asteroid strike, that we are geological actors, we're not simply historical actors. And we see this in a profound impact on the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the hydrological cycle, including the melting of the glaciers, the fact that 90% of vertebrate life today, which we shipped around the globe, uh, is human livestock, goats, I mean, cattle, pigs, goats, chicken, sheep. Uh, so it has profound biodiversity impact as well. Uh, and our current actions will be legible in some cases for thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years in the fossil record. So, you know, I think it, imaginatively it can deliver a kind of a jolt. And one of the tensions that, that I, I sense in the culture is this tension between people asking us to think in vast geological terms and at the same time daily life is more and more lived sort of at a nanosecond level. I mean, if we think of uh, the, even the way the, the trading floors and stock exchanges have changed and the way that people uh, flit constantly from interruption to interruption and our, our idea of continuous time is, is so much more scattered and fragmented than it was. So, so I think the relationship between the digital and the Anthropocene is, is, is a very complicated one, and it's a quite a difficult one to straddle. Uh, and climate change is, is like a, a scaled-down version of the Anthropocene. Uh, we, we're talking a lot about, you know, what will the world look like in 2050 as opposed to in 3,000 years' time? Yes. Yes, you, you, you mentioned this optimism that you have, and there's been tremendous momentum, I guess, since you wrote your book, and uh, not just at the younger generation in terms of awareness of, of climate change, but at the same time, things morph, and quite quickly you see, you know, the, the, the original idea that maybe that people would become aware that this was a challenge and therefore be open to solutions that you know that would would deal with the, the roots of these issues and so forth but actually you find that it's been kind of refabricated and rebuilt into uh, you know what you might call climate fascism in in some in some places and but really in in terms of uh, they say oh yeah well but yeah maybe climate change is happening but actually what we really need to do is you know close the borders and uh, you know uh, we need energy independence and all kinds of issues like that so the the uh, it does seem that um, the forces that, uh, that that don't really want regulation and mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. change like that are, are pretty uh, powerful and, and, and mobile. Yes, I think, I mean, one of the effects of neoliberalism and the, the kind of um, the, what, what Aaron Dutty calls the, the vertical uh, secession of the rich, um, the, this, this immense widening gap between the ultra-rich and the uber-poor, is that a lot of populations around the world feel abandoned and feel excluded. Uh, and the, the resulting populism can swing left or right in different circumstances. 
and depending how it's manipulated, um, it doesn't have an innate politics. Um, but I think that the one possible fallout from COVID could be uh, a wider recognition that um, societies cannot go it alone. Um, and and um, so Trump's narrow jingoism saying, you know, America's tested the most people, I mean, a, a bunch of deceits, but that America's tested the most people and that we're the most virtuous land in the history of uh, humanity and so forth. Um, uh, ring ring hollow in the face of uh, a pandemic that doesn't respect borders uh, and that uh, uh, a kind of involuted nationalism is not going to solve these kinds of problems. So it's a tussle. It's a political tussle. But I think, at least in the US, currently there is a swing uh, somewhat to the left, or at least to left of centre, uh, given that it's a fairly conservative society in many ways. Um, and I saw a statistic recently that that 5% of Americans under 30 were excited by Joe Biden, but a great majority of them would vote for him. Uh, and I think one thing that has happened as a result of Trump's extremism is a little bit of a shift to the left. And whatever the Democratic Party emerges as, it will have to take on board the priorities of, of um, uh, this younger generation, the Green New Deal generation. And it cannot simply be a question of returning to the status quo ante, you know, to, to normal. Uh, American electoral politics. At least that's my hope, and I do see some strong tendencies that even if Joe Biden's a kind of a placeholder, assuming he wins the presidency, uh, he will have to surround himself with a very diverse, uh, in, in ethnically and generationally diverse group of experts and activists who will not return the party to 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 the sort of center right uh, politics that prevailed before. Well, that's a very big question, isn't it? It is a big question, and I'm being speculative. I'm being optimistically speculative. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. And given his his uh, involvement and interest in uh, in uh, foreign uh, wars and and so forth, um, but yeah, it's uh, an evolving situation, isn't it? Um, and and you do see, you know, Spain's looking at the universal uh, basic income, isn't it? And yes. Uh, yes. In, in the UK now, you see people starting to say, well, you know, that at least they'd like a four-day week and things like that. I was talking to uh, someone recently on the podcast who just said this is a, a, it's a, a moment of, of tremendous political possibility. And, you know, we're, we're watching it, uh, you know, and taking part and helping it what, what to give birth to something, but it's still 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 unfolding. I maybe just I'd be quite interested in just coming back to the, the, the writing side of it just before before uh, I'm mindful of the time. You, you know, you uh, in, in your book uh, uh, showcase some wonderful uh, I guess non-fiction writers uh, talking about uh, writing about the environmental injustices and challenges and so forth. Um, I'm just wondering uh, also about about the fiction, um, what you think is happening there. Um, but firstly, I guess, I, ha, have more writers been emerging, do you think? I mean, I guess it was, it was what, what, eight or nine years ago. Uh, is there more movement on that front? And, and you, you emphasize the nonfiction side, but I'm just also wondering about, about uh, any fictional uh, currents that you, you think are interesting. Yes, I, uh, I, I think in, in, in your correspondence with me, you'd mentioned Amitav Ghosh's The Great Arrangement, where he talks about the, the struggle uh, in, in sort of conventional realist fiction to um, portray something as epic as, as, as uh, climate breakdown uh, and the, the scale of uh, sort of, a, let's call it the dominant, tradition of European and American realism uh, struggles to cope with something larger than landscape. Uh, and he talks about the, the, the tradition of the epic, the oral epic, um, which, which continues today in many societies, where you have 
the weather and the gods and these vast forces that in some sense are more analogous to the forces of the Anthropocene. Uh, and so, you know, he's been called to task uh, in some quarters but for not focusing enough on speculative fiction or science fiction and fantasy. Um, and I do see, for instance, in uh, a lot of the new writing around, say, Afrofuturism, which is much of which is quite indebted to someone like Octavia, uh, Octavia Butler, uh, who was writing these environmentally inflected uh, futuristic novels uh, decades ago. Uh, but there are these waves of Afrofuturist writers who enfold environmental themes into um, both utopian and, and dystopian novels about um, uh, 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 transformed worlds. Um, I, uh, I think of, uh, of, of Jem um, a writer called Jemison um, and, and, uh, and a whole slew of, of younger writers who are, there's uh, a wonderful uh, book uh, called Lagoon set in, set in Nigeria, uh, which um, blends this question of uh, rising waters and uh, sort of alternate forms of, of governance uh, that uh, transcend the possibilities of the present. So I do think that there's a lot of, of that um, writing emerging. And even, I mean, even if we, if we go back to something like, which we wouldn't normally think of as literary, but it's quite poetic, uh, the, the Pope's encyclical, Laudato Si', where he talks about the, the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor, and talks quite specifically about, about intergenerational theft, there is, in a surprising, uh, unexpected religious context there, a grappling with other ways of imagining a path forward. Um, and so I think this, this broader question of imagination, whether it's through films, through memes, uh, through video clips, whether it's through uh, encyclicals or Afrofuturism, this question of imagination um, is going to continue to play a profound role as we pursue uh, plausible paths forward um, that, 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 that offer us more hope and, and, and more sustenance. In the words of philosopher Frederick Jameson, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than an end to capitalism. Well, what's next for you, Bob? Well, I'm working on uh, a book tentatively titled uh, Environmental Martyrs and the Fate of the Forests. And so um, we're, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the relationship between humans and trees. Uh, and uh, as we know, the great tropical forests of the earth are, are, are absolutely vital for, uh, as for carbon capture, uh, for stabilizing the climate. Uh, for stabilizing the the hydrological cycles, um, they and if we think of, of of urbanization, we think of the place of trees in in cities, uh, the role of trees in reducing uh, the the trauma of uh, of in, increasing temperatures and and so called heat islands in concrete cities, and so humans and trees have always had this very long deep. Um, imaginative connections. I mean, if we think of uh, we we think of the the crown of the tree or the limbs of a tree, uh, or, or people being rootless. There's this, there's this, these cross currents, imaginative cross currents between trees and humans. But my focus in the book is 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 very largely on uh, forest defenders in the tropics, who many of whom have sacrificed their lives uh, in in defence of uh, forests that represent a set of cultural values as well. Uh, so these are activists in everywhere from Brazil to Honduras to Congo, Indonesia, Philippines, um, working as I usually do in the global south, where, where many of these environmental challenges are, if, if, if anything, more acute than they are in the richer nations. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in this question of the, the sort of sacrificial figure of the environmental martyr, the, these these land defenders and and biodiversity defenders, 
who in an anticipatory way are know that they're going to be killed, many of them, and yet stand up for those values uh, in defense of the forests that are the very condition of their life and that in a broader sense are also uh, the ground of our, 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 our planetary stability in many ways. That's a tremendously important, urgent question. I wish you the very best of success with your writing and your research, and thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your great work. Thank you, Fergal. It's been a great pleasure. If you like what you heard today on the Sustainability Agenda, we think you'll enjoy Jason Hickel's powerful new book, Less is More, How Degrowth Will Save the World, which shows how we need to transform the dogmas of capitalism to forge a new system that is fit for the 21st century. Available online and at all good bookstores. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.